Father God, I need more. Our church needs more. My family needs more. I want more. I want more hope, more joy, more peace, more love. I want the fullness of life that Jesus offers. Father, saturate my soul with your spirit so that I overflow with Jesus. I want more. But I confess I'm full of everything but Jesus. I've loaded my mind with so much noise that it's weary and worried. I've heaped stuff upon my soul that's left little space for the spirit who truly satisfies. I filled my time with my own agenda. I'm full, but it's not you. Something has to go. I'm bringing you everything, not you, that fills me up. I open my hands in a posture of surrender. Empty me. The noise, the distractions, the clutter, the fears, my attempts to control, my bitterness, my wounds. The burdens I've tried to carry on my own, my attempts to control, my stuff, even me. Empty me of me. With open hands, I surrender everything, not you. Empty me so you can fill me with joy and peace that overflows in hope. Empty me so you can saturate my soul with your spirit. Empty me so I can abound with the life coming from your hand. Fill us so full that we can't help but overflow with Jesus. Fill our families with your presence. Fill our neighborhoods with your love. Fill our valleys with the knowledge of your glory. Fill us so full that we can't help but overflow with Jesus. Amen. Hey, welcome to Calvary. Wherever you are and however you found us, you are so welcome. Most of you uh, know that Lynn, my wife, got double knee replacement surgery about 10 days ago or so, and I got her this set of five t-shirts, each with what I think is a funny uh, saying on the front. I don't think she's worn any of them yet, but like one of them said, sorry for what I said during physical therapy. That one's true. My personal favorite is the devil whispered in my ear, you're not strong enough to withstand the storm. Today I whispered in the devil's ear, I am the storm. And in the bottom it says, knee replacement warrior. Everybody has been so good to us, from Dr. Martin to the Mount Nittany staff to Millbringers and prayers and talkers, but, but now I'm her nurse, so my goodness, don't stop praying for her. Dr. Martin said it would be two to three weeks before she's glad that she got the surgery. It might take me a little bit longer before I'm glad she got the surgery. So we are on week three of our 50-day journey of Lust for More, and so far we've looked at the emptying practices of service and silence and solitude. Today it's surrender. Surrender is so key. But but don't forget, if you were with us for the last episode last weekend, don't forget we empty out for a purpose. We're, we're making space for God. The what of surrender is for the why of God. And specifically today, I want to start with the why of joy. Because there's this don't miss connection between surrender and Jesus and joy. I love this story. In February of 2006, an autistic high school senior named Jason McElwain dished up an experience of joy to a gym full of people. Jason was the manager of the basketball team. For three years, he got water and caught rebounds and mopped up sweat. But for the very last game of his last season, Jason's coach decided to reward the young man's efforts by letting him suit up for the team. And then ahead by 20 points with four minutes to go, the coach put Jason into the game. Now, Jason airballed his first two shots, but his third was a charm, a three-point swish. 
As soon as the ball went through the net, you can imagine the entire gymnasium erupted with applause, but Jason wasn't done. In the next four minutes, he hit six three-pointers, a Greece-Athena high school record. He finished with 20 points. And with each basket, the crowd became more enthusiastic. By the time Jason hit his last shot, I mean, kids are jumping up and down and moms are laughing and guys are crying because that's how we experience joy at a sports game. The game ended, the bleachers emptied onto the court, and everyone gathered around Jason as his teammates hoisted him onto their shoulders. Can you just imagine, you can almost feel it, can you imagine the overflow of joy in that gym? They didn't have to produce it, it was a gift. And when moments like that saturate our souls, we find ourselves thinking, oh man, let this moment never end. Listen, one day in the kingdom of God, the joy will never end. We'll be filled with more joy, with more life, more joy, more life than we can even begin to imagine. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a party, a celebration, a factory of joy. So listen to me. In the midst of all the difficulty, whatever that is for you right now, in the midst of whatever you're going through, don't forget this. One time Jesus was asked, what is the kingdom of God really like? And Jesus' answer was, the kingdom of God is like a wedding party. Now, on Jesus' day, wedding receptions were not an obligation. They were a ridiculously lavish celebration that involved the whole community and often went on for days, not hours. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like, Jesus said. C.S. Lewis put it this way, joy is the serious business of heaven. I'm not saying we don't go through tough times. Man, we've gone through some hard stuff in the last 30 plus months. I've done and gone to more funerals than any stretch I can remember. It's, it's been the hardest season of ministry I've ever led through. We've had division over politics and race and COVID and financial uncertainty and mental health issues. And, and some people just never came back to church. Some marriages didn't make it out of quarantine. Neither did some friendships. But Jesus is still the Son of God who dove into our mess to give us overflowing joy, joy in the midst of difficulty. I love how Isaiah describes this joyful God in Isaiah chapter 29, verses 13 and 14. He writes, these people, they come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me, he said, is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. Therefore, I love this, therefore, once more, I will astound them with wonder upon wonder. It's one of my favorite verses in scripture. See, God in this moment is bummed because people's hearts are all bricked up and their worship is filled with dry rules and regulations, the where's and the what's and the whatever's. But there's no joy. There's no fun. There's no wonder. And so what does God decide to do? He says, I will astound them again. Once more, I will astound them with wonder upon wonder. In other words, he said, I'm going to blow their minds, knock their socks off. I will bring a smile to their faces and joy to their hearts if it's the last thing that I do. Some of you know this story. Years ago, my son Josh was about eight, and he was in church listening to me preach, and he was asking so many questions. He did this all the time. We'd go to movies, ask so many questions. He was asking Lynn so many questions about the message, wouldn't quit asking questions. And finally, Lynn said, Josh, I'm missing everything that Daddy is saying. He was quiet for a while, and, and at some point, Lynn looked over, and he had his head in his hands like this, and, and so she just reached over and scratched his back. He looked up immediately, huge grin on his face. He said, Mom, he whispered, do you know what just happened? 
I prayed, God, if you really hear my prayers, would you make my mom reach over and scratch my back in two minutes and 10 seconds? And I counted, and right when I got to 130, he reached over and scratched my back. God astounded him with a wonder. And looking back over my life, I have story after story of times when God astounded me with a wonder. There, there's a time God gave my family an unexpected pod of dolphins as we snorkeled in a bay. I have an encouragement folder in my Gmail account that's full of stories of lives transformed and hope reborn and marriages restored. I could tell you about the birth of each one of our kids. And if we talked long enough, I would share some stories of walking through dark days with nothing but the joy of Jesus as a motivation to keep going. In, in my life, he has astounded me with wonder upon wonder. And you know, somehow, I think somewhere we've gotten this odd notion that to be truly spiritual is to be terminally gloomy. <laughs> when the Bible talks so much about joy, it even commands joy. In fact, I would argue that joy is at the very heart of God's plan for humanity. I love the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm 16:11. He says, you, talking to God, you will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. John Orberg, in a sermon, said, God is the happiest being in the universe. Now, God also knows sorrow, but the sorrow of God is a temporary response to a fallen world. Sorrow Orberg said, we'll be banished when the world is set right, but joy is God's basic character. Joy is his eternal destiny. I mean, what could be more essential for full life than uncontainable, unexplainable, outrageous joy? I'm, I'm not talking, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not, I'm not talking about a pain-free existence or getting everything I want when I want it. I'm not even talking about God changing any of my external circumstances because joy is, is more solid, more intense, and more exhilarating than circumstantial happiness. Joy produces laughter, but it's more. It's not less than, but it's more. It doesn't require a closed-eyed approach to reality, but it does require a new look at life. It requires a realization that joy is actually a gift from God. In fact, I think that's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5, verse 13, when he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? Joy is a gift from God. And no one does joy like God. I mean, go read the Gospels with this thought in mind. Jesus was the most joyful person who ever walked the face of the earth. <laughs> now, I remember, joy is broader than laughter, and it's deeper than just fun. But let me still ask the question, when's the last time you had fun with God? <laughs> fun and God, I mean, we don't often hear those two words put together in the same sentence, right? Unless a no is stuck in front of it. No, fun, God, but... But you know, on occasion, if you read the Gospels, Jesus knew how to be the life of the party. He did. So, so how long has it been since you had fun with God? I was thinking about that, remembering back. So many times when my kids were kids, we'd go out to play, maybe go across the street, Smithfield Street, to play basketball. And, and, and just minutes into playing, I would always turn into coach because, of course, I just want to help them grow and become better basketball players, better people, better whatever. But they could only take so much coaching, and pretty soon it's just, Dad, can we just play? Can we just have fun? 
And you know, when I'd put the coach aside and just play, I actually, I was saying to them, I love being with you. It's, it's not just about making you better. I'm not just in your life to make you better. I just get a kick out of playing with you. No agenda, no pressure. I just, just, let's just have fun. <laughs> and I think right now some of us desperately need to hear God saying, would you like to come out and play? Nancy Ortberg once wrote, I, I wonder how often we fail to recognize that some of the most powerful experiences for the existence of God are things like water skiing or hitting a great tee shot. She said, I, I wonder if sometimes the most powerful proof for the existence of God is the memory of our first kiss or the laughter that we share with friends diving into a pool on a hot day. And I would add the taste of Lynn's cinnamon rolls. Perhaps for you, it's the reading of a book or the crackling of a fire, the birth of a child. Listen, if, if I open my eyes, there is no place I can turn where, where I will not be overwhelmed by the goodness of God. I think sometimes the only picture of God stored in our hearts is the God who's grumpy, <laughs> gloomy, disappointed, and annoyed. I mean, who wants to be with that God? But, but what if we could saturate our souls in the glory of the God who overwhelms us with his goodness, who wants to astound us with wonder and fill our hearts with joy? See, joy is, is actually one of our most powerful connectors to the presence of God. God created us for joy. And when we do something because it brings us joy, we're not being selfish. We're being creatures created in his image. C.S. Lewis put it so well when he said, if we would consider the unblushing promises of the reward and the staggering nature of the life promised us in the Gospels, it, it seems that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. He said, we're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. And I, get, get this picture in, in your mind. He says, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what a beach vacation is like, we are far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. We're filling up on stuff that can only bring momentary happiness. That This is the reality of sin. Sin holds out a promise for joy, but the joy of sin, of disobedience to God is momentary. And, and in the end, it, it brings sorrow, not happiness. It brings emptiness, really dry emptiness. But Jesus offers something different. He said in John 15, 11, I've told you these things. He said to his disciples, I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Your joy will overflow. Let me ask you, when is the last time you had a joy flood? <laughs> California, we have some friends out in California. Some of you listening right now, it's getting walloped with rain right now. Rain coming from an atmospheric river. I'd, I'd never heard of an atmospheric river, but, but they can be over a thousand miles long and a hundred miles wide. One atmospheric river can carry more water than the Amazon River, the largest river in the world. In the last two weeks, they've had five atmospheric rivers. And yet I'm telling you, listen, Jesus' joy makes atmospheric rivers look like Spring Creek in a drought. Ask yourself, when is the last time I was filled with joy? That's the more that we were, were trading in our less for. It's the why of our what. Make more space for a flood of Jesus' joy. A, a joy, a joy that is, is there for good and hard times. I mean, can we have overflowing joy, joy in times of great trouble? 
Only if it's a gift. Only if the best is yet to come. And joy is simply a, a taste of what is to come. So for a few minutes, I, I, I want to look at Jesus' first miracle. It's in the Gospel of John. John calls it a sign. And a sign is, is an act that points to something more. It reveals something. It points us toward and, and reveals something about Jesus. What does it reveal? This miracle reveals that Jesus is the life of the party. So just li- listen to the first part of the story in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Here's, here's what John says. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. I've been there. Cool little town. <laughs> in fact, I did a, a wedding renewal there once. Uh, this wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone... Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. They have no more wine. The wine is run dry. Now, in those days, a father would start preparing for his daughter's wedding day, the the day she was born. The average cost for a wedding last year in America was $28,000, $34,000 if you count the ring, (laughs) $6,000 on a ring. I I didn't do that. But but a wedding in those days was not a one-night party with an intimate invite list. It was a community event that lasted for days. So just imagine in your mind the owner of the vineyard, every year since she was born, They'd crush the grapes and make the wine, and they'd set one barrel back for his daughter's wedding. Girls would usually get married by 15 or 16, so a good father might have 16 barrels of wine, some some barrels well-aged and fine wine, which is where they would always start. Start the party with the best wine first. But this particular wedding party involves a wedding emergency, a party embarrassment. Jesus' mother Mary comes to Jesus and says, "They've, they've run out of wine. They have no more wine. As another pastor said, with those words, Mary speaks a truth about life, a truth that we all or maybe all have experienced. The truth is this, there comes a day when the wine runs out, when the glass is empty and the party is over, and on that day, life seems empty and dry. Now, Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to a wedding party, but even beyond that, biblically, Old Testament, New Testament, the image of wine brings to mind the joy and abundance of life with God. The the Bible clearly critiques the misuse of wine, but the prophet Isaiah tells us that, that one of the marks of the Messiah is that he will rescue us from hardship and provide for us a feast full of rich food and well-aged wine. In other words, in the midst of our difficulty, he gives joy when the When the wine runs dry, he still gives joy. So here's my question. Has your wine run dry? Maybe you aren't interested in emptying practices because you already feel empty. Or maybe you're empty, but you don't even realize it. If that's the case, ask the people around you. Has my wine run dry? Have I lost the joy? It's those times when everything just seems a bit harder, a bit drier, a bit darker. Maybe not, maybe not full-on depression, but not thriving. Just dry. You know, most of us could tell a story about the day the wine ran dry. It might involve a marriage that lost its joy or the death of a loved one. It might involve a lonely search for community or wrestling with failure. Perhaps regret or fear drained you dry. Some don't even know why. They just have this indescribable longing for an unnamed something more. The wine of your life has run dry. You know what? When I was young, I thought that when the wine ran dry, I could always fill my cup on my own. Just work harder, think smarter, laugh louder, be first more often, achievement, recognition, vindication, validation, success. 
But I don't know. I've discovered that the wine running dry is less about my circumstances and it's more about my heart. And the cure isn't found in the illusion of my self-sufficiency, but in the reality of God's gracious provision. See, what I found, you maybe have found this too, what I found is that there's no need for a miracle till the wine runs dry. Everyone wants a miracle, but no one wants to need a miracle. We don't ask for a miracle of filling until we realize that we have an unfillable emptiness. So sometimes the first step to making space for God is to simply admit that I'm empty and I can't get full. Even the full that I have feels empty. I, I, I can't bring it back. We can't make it work. We can't fill it up, at least not on my own. And so Mary goes to Jesus. Jesus, the wine is run dry. The conversation continues in John chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother simply said to the student, servants, excuse me, do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> now, Jesus sounds almost disrespectful here, but he's not. The, the language of the day between parent and child was often more formal. Jesus isn't saying, leave me alone, Mary. Get out of here, Mom. M Mary is asking for a miracle, and Jesus is simply saying, it's not time yet. It's not time yet for the miracles. This was his first one. It's not time for the miracles. It's not time for people to begin to wonder about me. My hour has not yet come. But Mary doesn't stop. This is a wedding embarrassment. She, she knows it's a joy emergency, and so she just looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. It's kind of like when she told the angel who came and told her she was pregnant with Jesus. She told the angel announcing Jesus' birth, Mary said, let it be to me according to your word. In other words, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. This is so key. This, this is the heart of this message. If we want joy, if we want to live our one and only life overflowing with joy, don't miss this principle. When the wine runs dry and you come to Jesus, we can ask for anything as long as we're willing to surrender everything. I'm not saying we'll always get it, but we can ask for anything as long as we're willing to surrender everything. Mary told them, just do whatever he tells you to do. This is the practice of surrender. Sometimes it's a big thing. Sometimes it's a little thing. Fill the jugs up with water. <laughs> this is the practice of surrender. When we ask for a miracle, we honor God's hand by the size of our requests, but we honor his heart by our willingness to do whatever he asks. Surrender is the key because surrender is the path to more of Jesus, and it's more of Jesus, not more miracles. It's more of Jesus that brings life. So just ask yourself, what am I willing to surrender for joy? Do whatever he says, Mary says. Mary comes with a request, but she leaves it all in Jesus' hands. She She's not going to tell him how to do it. She trusts his heart. She is surrendered. We, we can ask for anything and we're willing to surrender everything. God, God won't stop convicting me personally in this area. I mean, first, he has given me a, a deep desire for new wine in the church, a, a new chapter, new joy, new power, new life, personal renewal, corporate revival, and awakening in our neighborhoods to the love and reality of Christ. You understand, you may not agree with me, but I believe with all my heart it's the church that has run out of wine. And, and I so long to see her filled again, bringing life and joy to, to neighborhoods all over the country. How, how do we practice surrender? Sometimes it's, it's little things. Sometimes it's hard things. 
In March of 2020, Jesus started me on a surrender journey. First, in the midst of my worst night of having COVID-19, I sensed God asking me to surrender control. I, you know, I was so worried about what I needed to be doing at that time as a leader, but I couldn't do. I was sick, so sick. And I, I sensed God just saying, Dan, be still, surrender control. Let your hands grow slack. Well, well I remember sensing him say, what I put on your heart, I'm doing. Be still, Surrender. And soon after that, a second area, Dan, I want you to surrender the crowds. I'm saying, God, that's what I've lived for. It's how I've measured my success. How large is the crowd at Calvary? And then the trifecta was, Dan, I want you to surrender your voice. I'm still working on what that one looks like, but all I know is that he's asked this leader, preacher, church builder to surrender control, surrender the crowds, and surrender my voice. I'm just saying, other than my family, what else do I I have? But you can ask him for anything if you're willing to surrender in everything. The story continues in verses 6 through 10 with this reminder that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. John 2, 6 through 10, it says this. Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he didn't realize where it had come from for the servants, even though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. He said, you know what? Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best Till now. Think about this. Six stone water jars <laughs> holding about 150 gallons of water. And, and when the master of the banquet gives it the taste test, he realized that what they thought was good wine in the beginning is nothing compared to the wine bottled under Christ's label. This is a miracle of quantity and quality. This would be like 768 bottles of fine wine. So much and so good. But remember, this is not just a miracle. It's a sign, John says. It's an act revealing something about Jesus. And perhaps what it reveals is this. Above and beyond joy is coming. Because Jesus always saves the best for last. When we uncork the joy of Jesus, it goes beyond our expectations, both in quantity and quality. Listen, don't miss the party. If you believe in Jesus, you will get so full of life that barrels of joy will gush out from you. Jesus loved life and he was filled with joy. Even in the midst of the hard times, even the cross, he said, it was because of the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Can you imagine Jesus making 768 bottles of fine wine without a twinkle in his eye? It's It's extreme. I got to tell you, when Jesus walked the earth, he knew how to party. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Some of you have been going to parties where the alcohol has flowed freely, but the wine of your heart has run dry. You went looking for life. You, you, You pour every moment in what you do looking for life. You make decisions because you're looking for life. You're looking for for fullness, for joy. But Jesus didn't go to parties looking for life. Wherever he was, a party broke out because he had life to give. And And he gives life and he gives joy to all who ask, a joy that fills you up in even the most difficult of times. Love this. John closes his story with these words in verse 11. 
It says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Here's the deal. The reward of surrender is revelation. If you surrender, you're going to get a new look of who Jesus is and what he wants you to do. The reward of surrender is revelation, and the result of revelation is worship. And the question is, do I believe in him? Am I ready for new wine? Do I believe in him? I got an email this week from a former Penn State student named Christy, and, and uh, she, she writes this. She says, I, I love looking back to see all the amazing ways God is weaving together my story. Believe it or not, she wrote, having never actually met your part of my story. During my first week of college, I met a girl in my English class and asked if we could get lunch. We invited another guy from our class, and while walking into the lunchroom, she recognized another student named Paul and invited him to eat with us. Spoiler alert, Christy writes, he became my husband. We ate lunch together every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday our freshman year. We called ourselves the Lunch Bunch. She writes, I grew up in a Christian home, but after joining a dance team that prioritized partying and social gatherings, I quickly fell into a bad cycle, and every weekend was about drinking until you were drunk, usually getting drunk before even making it to the party. But every Sunday, she wrote, church was a habit that I just couldn't shake. So each Sunday, I'd go and sit in the state theater, usually a little hungover, Every Monday, I'd fill in the lunch bunch on what I thought were some amazing weekends and at the same point mentioned that I was also going to church. Paul asked if he could join me, so each Sunday, we would go and listen to your message together. As our freshman year continued, I began to feel more and more empty. I remember a night when I was drunk, sitting on the floor of my dorm, totally alone, trying to throw up into a trash bag to feel better. Turns out, drinking until I felt horrible wasn't actually fun. Meanwhile, I kept going to church. God was changing me, and I could feel it, and those around me could as well. By the end of my freshman year, I decided to quit the dance club, the dance team, and start my own club. I called it Team Uke. (laughs) Paul, she writes, cleverly renamed it to P.S. Ukulele. (laughs) God was steering my life at that time, and I didn't even know it. That summer, she writes, I spoke to my oldest sister who also went to Penn State. I told her about how I was enjoying my church and how impacted I felt. I said, my pastor cries a lot. She mentioned her pastor also cried a lot. And that was the first time we realized that we had ended up going to the same church. Paul and I continued to go to church for the rest of our time at Penn State. Our friendship grew. I started asking God to give me a wonderful man who loved him. Turns out he already had. In our senior year, we joined a wonderful Calvary life group. God's timing was so perfect. Fast forward to today, Paul and I have been married for four years. We welcomed a sweet baby boy into the world in October. We are super active in our church, a wonderful community where I sing in the praise band and Paul does sound. Before we go back in person with our newborn, we've been watching Calvary on Sundays. God is still writing our story and I'm so grateful he's in control. We're so grateful for you in the church and the state theater, and we're grateful to know that Jesus works in broken people and can make them whole again. They believed in him, and they found new wine. (laughs) Steps of surrender led to a filling of joy because they were willing to do what he told them to do. 
they believed in him and they found new wine. You know, I think Jesus is the most uncommon person who ever lived. I, I think he is what our hearts thirst for. Every time the wine runs dry, it's a reminder that we were made for something better, someone greater. I believe that in those moments when it seems like he is asking you to surrender too much, he simply wants us to open our arms for something better than we can imagine. What is he asking you to surrender? What is he asking you to do? Do you believe in him? Are you willing to do whatever he asks you to do? Just go do that. Let me pray for you. Jesus, for everyone listening to the sound of my voice, God, would you, would you awaken them to the, the joy and the life that you have available? Would you show them what they're filling their hearts and souls and minds up with that does not actually bring that same kind of joy? Father, I thank you for Christy and Paul and, and for the journey that you've led them on. And, and I pray that in the days to come that you would fill them full of joy and life and grace, that you would give them um, hearts like you would give to us. God, would you give all of us hearts that simply say, Jesus, whatever you tell us to do, we'll do. Big, little, small, hard, easy. <laughs> whatever you tell us to do, we'll do. And as we do that, Jesus, would you empty us out and fill us up with your presence and your joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.